So our amazing executive producer, Lily Percy, has taught me so much about movies across the years and how movie watching can make for big, deep, fun conversation. And now she's turned this passion of hers into On Being Studios' new podcast, This Movie Changed Me. I'm really proud of it. There are new episodes every other Tuesday. You don't have to have watched the movies in advance, but if you love You've Got Mail or The Nightmare Before Christmas or Star Wars, you're already ahead. This is a fabulous audio experience. Great thoughts, laughter, a few tears, and immersive movie music and moments. If you haven't listened yet, it's time. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives, a powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being's Unheard Cut. You're listening to my unedited conversation with John Powell. Listen to our produced show with him wherever you find your podcasts, and, as always, at onbeing.org. Hello, hello. Hello. <laughs> Excuse me. Hi, my name's Trent Gillis. I'm the Chief Content Officer and Executive Editor of On Being. And thank you for being here. It's a beautiful morning, thank goodness. Uh, so I'm glad everybody isn't tracking in mud and snow. Uh, uh, how many of you know of On Being or listen to the show? Well, that's, that's a good participation rate. Well, thank you for coming here. Um, if you don't know much about On Being, about uh, two years ago, a little less than two years ago, we broke off and started our own nonprofit organization. And part of the reason behind that and the impulse was is that we wanted to extend our journalistic okay. work and take it in, in meaningful ways into the community. And part of that is we're starting to think of ourselves as a social enterprise. And as we do that, we're doing all different types of things from your audio selfies to uh, hiring a, a crew of columnists that write about the big issues of the day. And one of the other things we do is the Civil Conversations Project. And that's been going on for almost four years now. And it started out just as a series of interviews and we had no idea that we were gonna create something out of it. And as we did, we started to realize that people really wanted to embrace difference. They wanted to bring their, their full selves to the discussion, but they didn't have a lot of venues to do it at and they didn't have a lot of role models and ways to do it differently, what's in the media. And so this is the first uh, live event we're doing of 2015 and we're so pleased to have John Powell here. And so with that, I'll turn it over, and I will ask you, if you have cell phones, you're more, than, um, you're more than permitted to tweet it if you want. I just ask that you silence it. And if you want to use the hashtag on being, O-N-B-E-I-N-G, um, we're glad to do that, and thank you. Yeah. Well, just... Uh... Just reiterate, Trent's welcome. I see some familiar faces. It's so exciting to every time we open the space up like this. We've tried to create a physical space that carries the virtues of our media space of hospitality and beauty. And uh, and when and when we have you here, you know, it just adds this dimension for us to the work we do. So thanks for coming out. We didn't know who'd be available at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, but apparently more people than we realized. And I just could not be more thrilled to have John Powell with us. Um, I'll give you his 
his official credentials first. John, John A. Powell is one of our, this is me, one of our most esteemed thinkers and actors on race and civil liberties. He's the director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society at the University of California at Berkeley, also a professor of law there, as well as African American studies and ethnic studies. He previously directed the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity at Ohio State University and was founder and director of the Institute on Race and Poverty at the University of Minnesota. His work has taken him also to Miami and Seattle and Africa and law schools from Harvard to Columbia, and I could go on and on. Um, when one speaks the word race in America right now, uh, many images come to mind uh, and, and a great deal of anguish. And we are going to have some opportunity as we go through the next hour and a half to, to bring some of the, what you've brought on your hearts and minds today um, into conversation with John Powell. What I'd like to do first with him up here is pull back a wide and generous lens on all of this. Because that's what I so value in John Powell's personal wisdom as well as his scholarship. He examines the questions around race in the largest possible human context. The questions of who we are, who we want to become, and how we get there from here. He uses language that I love when he talks about what the goals are of our grappling with all of the subjects around this subject. Goals are claiming our mutual shared humanity, healing ourselves, securing our future. And he suggests that the struggle for racial and social justice offers an unparalleled lens through which we can see and achieve these great aspirations. He also says that this is spiritual work as much as it is political work, the spiritual and political work of the 21st century. That's not language that's often invoked by legal scholars, um, and it's not so often invoked in the context of civil rights, certainly compared to the 1960s. Um, but I, I, where I'd like to start, I think, is, you know, here are some things you've said about race. Race is a little bit like gravity. Race is not just an external trait. It is also an internal process that can create and destroy internal and external worlds. I would like to start, though, with just posing that question to you, know, the question of what race is and how you would begin to answer that question through the story of your, your earliest life. Um, and your answer might include the spiritual aspect of that as well as the practical. Well, first of all, good morning, and thank you for having me. I've been a fan of yours for many years, and it's a delight to be here with you in person. Um, like most of our lives, we have many stories, and, um, and sometimes we wonder if they're true, um, <laughs> even though we live them, because we keep making stories, we keep adding to our stories. Um, I come from a large family. Uh, although I, it wasn't large when I was growing up. I'm six of nine children. And when I went, when I went away to college, that's when it became large and everyone had two and three children. Um, and my father and mother uh, were sharecroppers in the South. Yeah. My father was a Christian minister. So in some sense... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, some yeah. sense. And he's, um, we're getting ready to have a big birthday party. I hope some of you will come. He's celebrating 95 this year. Yeah. Um, an amazing man. Sometimes I say... I later learned the term 
bodhisattva, and I said my first bodhisattva was my father. Yeah. Um, he really is an amazing person, as is my mom. And if I were to chronicle their lives, it would sound like, wow, what a hard life. You know, having lost his mother at an early age, he was forced to leave school in the third grade to start working full time and worked ever since then. Uh, he'd lost limbs, he's mm. legally blind. Um, I remember being 12 years old in Detroit. He, like most people from the South, he did everything himself. So he's fixing a furnace and it blew up. It centered all the hair on his body, so he had burns all over his body. Mm. We're driving around the city trying to find a hospital that would accept a black man and getting turned away and then going to the next hospital and getting turned away. And as I tell these stories, again, they're sad stories, but when you meet my dad, he just radiates love. I mean, he literally attracts people. Um, mm. And he, he has this quality of appreciating life. And I feel like a little of that has fallen to me. Um, my interest in social justice, I don't know where it comes from really, except I would say part of it's the family, part of it's, to me, it's, a, it's an expression of caring, just caring about people and saying that you are connected to people and other life forms, and then giving it voice. Um, and I think if we do that, we not only lean into what's called social justice, but deeply into spirituality and religion as well. Mm. Um, so one story that I share that's an example of that, my family's very religious and very loving and very close. My siblings, even today, live across the street from each other, and their kids live across the street from each other, uh, and I left. Yeah. Um, but when I was 11 years old, we had a thing in our church where at the end of the service on Sunday, they would say, if you have any questions, stand up and ask. And I'd gone to that church since I was, can first remember. And it hadn't occurred to me that no one had ever asked a question. And so the minister was preaching. It wasn't my father. He said, if anyone has any questions, stand up and ask before we end service. And I stood up. And there was this audible, <sighs> <laughs> And the minister said, no, no, that's OK, Brother Powell. What's your question? And I said, Brother Manuel, what's going to happen to the Chinese? Now I grew up in Detroit. I hadn't seen a Chinese. I was curious as a young man. I've always been curious about life and read a lot. And so I read about the Chinese. I read that there were a lot of them. And I read that most of them were not going to be baptized in my father's church, uh, which suggested by the doctrine in the church they were all going to go to hell. Yeah. And that troubled me. And so Brother Manuel took me to one scripture and another scripture, and then finally said, just don't worry about it. <laughs> I never went back to the church. Uh, and that was, in a sense, my journey away from Christianity. Um, and only years later that I actually have the, the uh, pleasure and delight to meet someone who was actually Chinese uh, and blame them for the rift in my family when I was 11. <laughs> So um, this moment we're in now, you know, writ large, um, one of the things you've said is that race is in the DNA of this country, but it's also ever-changing and evolving. And that right now, in our neighborhoods, in our world, there are contradictory things happening. So kind of on a 
with a wide lens. Talk about the contradictory things you see happening. Well, race is actually, it is like gravity. And I, I like to use that metaphor because what scientists say is like all of us have weight, right? And so we, we think we may all be experts in gravity, but scientists say there are probably 12 people in the world that really understand gravity. And I would say there's only a few more in the world that understand race. So we, in this country, we have ideas about race and we have a race, but it's actually incredibly complex once we start peeling it back. And part of the ways to understand the complexity of it is 30 years ago, some friends of mine, uh, Howard Winnett and Michael Omi, wrote a book, and they talked about the social construction of race. And that book has actually had a lot of currency. So everyone now sort of talks about race being socially constructed. Although it's interesting, they don't talk about how it's constructed. Hmm. Uh, right. which, uh, and so some people have taken that uh, insight and said, well, since race is socially constructed instead of scientifically based, it's not real. Why are we dealing with it? Let's just move beyond it. But I remind people that the self is also socially constructed. And as far as I know, except maybe a few Buddhists, no one has said, so why don't we just drop the self? Right. Right? Yeah. Um, and because it's socially constructed, both the self, our sense of identities, our multiple identities, and race, socially constructed, not individually constructed, it's constantly being reconstructed. It's constantly being contested. It's constantly being made over and over and over again. It's a set of things we do and happen and live in ways like most things, we don't notice the change. We don't notice that the way we do race today is different than the way we did it yesterday. I'm old enough to have been born colored. And then I became a Negro. And then I became black. <laughs> and then I became African American. And then I became Afro. And people are just now confused. Like, so what are we, you know? <laughs> yeah. And part of the confusion, and each of those terms are significant. They're not just terms. So again, I'm old enough to remember that to associate African-Americans with Africa was an insult. I'm old enough to remember that people didn't want to be black. black and in fact, uh, but also race is deeply relational. So when African-Americans started calling themselves African-Americans, first of all, much of white society protested. Even though for years they've been calling us, in a derogative term, African. Once we embrace it, it's like, why are you calling yourself African? You're just American. And then they say, okay, you can call yourself African-American. I'm going to be a European-American. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? So that yeah. term, you know, so there's dance between African-Americans and white Americans. And it's interesting, if you go back and think about how whiteness was early defined in America, it was defined largely as not black. And so James Baldwin reminds us that Blackness is in whiteness, that whiteness is in blackness, mm. that these are these complicated dances these, that we, most of us don't understand. Um, yeah, and I, so, and I feel uh, that the word race itself is, doesn't serve us very well. You can't get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Although I fantasize about having entire discussions where we didn't use the word race. Mm-hmm where we were talking about all the things that are actually involved. Um, and I think one, one reason I feel it doesn't work as shorthand, like a lot of words we need, you know, a lot of words we need, like love is another one mm-hmm. we'll probably, you know, it doesn't, you've ruined it. But, um, and I, I feel like 
we, we, we tend to take the word race in our imaginations to be something that is about people of color. Mm-hmm. And a point that's so important in your writing is, that, is the question of whiteness, mm-hmm. right? That we all have race. Right. And um, you actually gave me, you know, the language of white privilege, which is, which is one place people go with that is, it's also, I think, difficult if, if what we're trying to do is open up towards each other, because I think it, it puts people on the defensive, like the word racism puts people on the defensive. Um, but something you, an analogy that you gave that was so helpful to me, said whiteness is like the invisible presence of the narrator in a story told from the third person point of view. That's very helpful for yeah. me to imagine that. So, you know, it's not surprising that we actually want to get beyond race. I I, um, was looking at a recent survey of MTV of the millenniums, and a lot of people think, well, the next generation, you know, we sort of, we're we're like, we keep punting the ball, you know? Uh, And I remember when I was coming of age uh, in my teenage years in the 60s, people thought, and Bob Dylan wrote a song about it, a Minnesotan, times are changing, you know, the world is about to change. And now, you know, we're called the, you know, aging baby boomers, and we kind of made a mess of things. Mm-hmm. We didn't change the world. We thought our parents were whatever, you know, like too old, too square, didn't get it. Uh, and now we're our parents' age, and we're doing some of the same thing. So one of the yeah. things about language is language is never quite right, but neither is not language. And what we're finding now in the last 30 years is that much of the work in terms of our cognitive and emotional response to the world happens at the unconscious level. Right. And the unconscious is, in a sense, much more interested and willing to grapple with race than we are consciously now. When we move from race and discussion of race, it was partially because we were trying to move from a Jim Crow era and a white supremacy era, and we said, okay, that's bad. So to notice race is bad. So let's not notice it anymore. Yeah. But it was still deeply embedded in our biology, in our structures, in our arrangements. And the unconscious was saying to the conscious, you can do whatever you want to. We're going to keep noticing race. Uh, and so it's keep, it still responds to race in some pretty powerful ways. The other thing is that because we are so powerfully rooted to the notion of individuality, in some way, race affronts that. But the real affront is the whole notion of individuality. Individuality, yeah. as we think of it, is actually extremely problematic. Well, see, yeah, and you make this really fascinating point that you say that there, that there are two parents to the way we are now, the way we grapple with race, among other things. And one is slavery, get that, and the other is the Enlightenment. And that, in fact, it's from the Enlightenment that we inherited this idea that the conscious mind could know everything, um, that we could be reasonable. Um, and also that the self-made man, this individualism, is an offspring of the Enlightenment, which is fascinating to me because, you know, I grew up in a small town in Oklahoma where, you know, I mean, my father was the quintessential self-made man. I, I don't know if he'd ever heard the word Enlightenment, but that it's so permeated who we are, who all of us are. Yeah, that's the American exceptionalism. Yeah. Uh, the Enlightenment obviously affected Europe, but Europe didn't have slaves in their midst. And so the United States became extremely extremely attached to the notion of individuality and independence. And it partially was reaction to the slaves who were dependent. Now think about the groups who were not independent. They were 
the Africans, there were the Indians, there were women, there were anyone who was not a white male. Right. So the, the notion, the Enlightenment project is what I call it, and I think the project is actually being tethered right now, was really about whiteness. And because it's also a huge fiction, there was always this deep anxiety. The world was always running beyond us. And I, I, I used the example, nature. Nature refused to be controlled. So we like parks, you know, we go there, <laughs> but we hate or we're afraid of the woods because the woods is unruly. The grass doesn't stay put. Yeah. Uh, whereas we can plant a tree and you say, stay there. You know, that's a park. Uh, and things we can't control out of the Enlightenment Project, which had this hubris that we could control everything, including the world, when we can't even really control ourselves. Right. Uh, as we become aware of the unconscious, one of the first reactions is, how do we make the conscious ruler of the unconscious, which we can't do? That's the hubris of the Enlightenment Project. So the, the attack on the, on the Enlightenment Project is not just coming from feminists or critical race, it's coming from science. It's saying the notion of a transparent, fully aware self is just a fiction. It doesn't exist, and we can demonstrate that in thousands of ways. And if we were having this discussion in 1980, we'd say, okay, let's not do race. Let's look at everyone as an individual. Why do we have all these categories? Well, now if you ask the question, why do we have all those categories, the science will tell us. That's the way the mind works. The mind actually works with categories. We simply could not process the world. We simply would not exist right. as a species without categories. So the, the desire to jump beyond categories and see the world as it is, is another fiction. And yet this, this condition of each of us in isolation, which you know, you associate with whiteness, um, which is this, this cultural, the culture of domination, um, is is not sustainable and it's not desirable. It is not. And we're running into the, and we're, I, I feel like we've we've run, we're, we're we're running into the limits of our, our ability to convince ourselves that it is desirable. No, you know, there are so many expressions that help us see it, and you know, sometimes people talk about we need to do things to connect. And, and on one hand, that's right, but on the other hand, it understates what it is. We are connected. What we need to do is become aware of it, to live it, to express it. Right. So think about segregation. Segregation is a, is a formal way of saying, how do I deny my connection with you in the physical space? Uh, think about the notion of whiteness. So whiteness in the United States, as it came, as it took form, believed that one drop of black blood, whatever that is, would destroy whiteness. So that this thing of whiteness in the minds of whites was so fragile that if you had one drop of black blood, it would destroy it. And you go back and read the literature in the 19th and uh, early 20th century, and people were obsessed uh, because, of, first of all, they didn't have very much genetics, and so they had to go back to family trees to try to prove that they were not, didn't have any black blood in them. Turns out, whatever that means, most, most white Americans actually do have black blood. Uh, you know, the reason that most African Americans look like me or like Gary is because white blood and black blood's been mixing up for a long time, and yet it's underbelly. It's like Jefferson could never come to terms with the fact that he was connected with his slave mistress. Um, and so 
I think that as we deny the other, we deny ourselves, because there is no other. Yeah. Uh, and um, so I do think it's not sustainable. But think about the environment. The United States, in the last 10 years, have cut greenhouse emissions. Greenhouse emissions in the United States and the rest of the world has gone up. Well, the greenhouse emissions that come from China and India don't stay in China and India. Right. You know, they don't respect national boundaries. When someone gets new, um, Ebola or the measles, it travels. The world is profoundly connected. Uh, and we keep trying to make it not connected instead of saying, okay, what do we do? We live with this, you know, we have to share this one earth. There's not a Chinese earth and an American earth and a Canadian earth and a white earth and a black earth. There's earth. And what technology and, and the environment has done is made it clear to us that we are in relationship to each other. And as James Baldwin says, he says, some of my countrymen find this unfair and even inconvenient. And he says, at times, so do I. But none of us can do anything about it. Right. We are connected. How do we actually acknowledge that? How do we actually celebrate that? And I think one of the things we have to do is have a different sense of whiteness. Because whiteness is the hard nut right. that wants to exclude, that wants to dominate. That wants, and I don't mean people who are phenotypically light-skinned. I mean the practice this culture of, of whiteness. Yeah. Right. And once you start talking about that kind of human connection, then we are on spiritual territory as well as territory that has political implications. See, I just noticed I don't have a clock. Just, there's, do I, <laughs> I need to be able to know what time it is. Oh, there it is, right um, there. Where is it's it? 10, oh, okay, <laughs> great. Yeah, see, we, see, the system has changed. Good, all right. Um, so I was, two years ago, I was really... Uh, I was, had this great privilege, actually, a few, few of us on our team, to go to the civil rights pilgrimage that we all saw the pictures in the newspaper this last weekend, the 50th anniversary of Selma. But John Lewis has been taking a pilgrimage of people from both sides of Congress. Have you done this? No, I haven't. You should. And, uh, and, and a few Maybe other we'll people who get involved. <laughs> yes. Um, and so, okay, so I want to tell you about one of the most amazing moments was, um, and, the, and then when you go to these places that were, that gave, birth to that movement and nourished it. And so we were at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, King's Church. There was a white journalist there, and he'd been one of the main journalists who covered the civil rights movement, I think for the New York Times, but anyway, one of the major papers. He told this story um, about sitting with Dr. King, and I think he had to go to Dr. King's house because Dr. King couldn't have come to his house, right? And Dr. King was talking to him about, you know, how there is progress here because isn't this amazing that you and I can be sitting and talking? And this man, though, as this journalist had gone back and looked at his own family as part of his investigation of that and found all of this slavery and slaveholding and... Um, Anyway, but he, he, he said, you know, he, he said to Dr. King, well, I don't, you know, no, we haven't come that far because you, you can't come to my house. Mm. In any case, he had this realization that he shared with us. There, he had this moment, this aha moment, after covering this movement as a journalist, that that, that movement was as much for the sake of his soul as it was for the sake of people of color. 
And uh, I don't, that's so true. I don't know. I think it's worth saying that. I mean, and to me, that's, in, that's one way of talking about your point that right. we have to talk about whiteness. Well, you're exactly right. I was teaching a class at the University of Minnesota, and I was talking about the taking of Native American land. And most of my students were white students, and one student objected. It's like, this is a such and such class. Why are we studying the history of Native Americans? And I said, we're not. We're studying the history of America. So when we study, talk about the appropriation of Native American land, or when we talk about slavery, we're not talking about the history of black people. We're talking about the history of this country. Uh, and that's something that we keep trying to deny, is that that's about them. Uh, I mean, which means we actually don't know our own history. Uh, so your point is well taken. And Toni Morrison made the observation. She said, you know, we've had all of these studies on what the institution of slavery has done to mark the black identity. She said, it's about time we look at what is done to mark the white identity. Mm -hmm. It's America. That's what slavery is about. It's about America. And I don't care if you came here last week or 10 days ago, you can't understand this country without understanding the institution of slavery. It was pivotal. Um, give you just one example. Up until the Civil War, you didn't have, if you went to Congress and people sat on either aisle, it wasn't the Whigs and the, the Federalists sitting on one side or the other. It was the pro-slavery and the anti-slavery. That was the defining issue mm. until the Civil War, the defining issue. Everything went through that crucible. If you want to be, to get um, uh, endorsed by the Senate, the question was, what's your position on slavery? Uh, think about the Electoral College, a curious American political system. It was put in place largely because of slavery. Uh, how do you count people as three-fifths and then create a system to actually elect a president? Uh, the debate was, do you count them as a full person for the purpose of the Electoral College or not? So we have all these institutions that we still inhabit today that were framed around the institution of slavery. Yeah. And we still have them today. And there's language that you've been using that I really appreciate um, of belonging. You know, as we try to move beyond the language that's divided us and the behavior that's divided us, tell me how you, you know, how you came to that and, and you know, what that means for you and, and how, that think you might, how you think that might be powerful. Well, I run this large uh, institution at Berkeley. I think it's the largest of its kind in the world. We have about 100 researchers at Berkeley and other research around the country. And we're organized around seven different clusters. And they're thematic as well as focused on different populations. So it deals with LGBTQ. It deals with uh, disability. One cluster focuses on poverty. Another cluster focuses on race. Another cluster focuses on gender. And I'm the founding director. And I got there and I was thinking, what do all these things have in common? Uh, and right now, there's not a practice you know, people sort of wave at each other, but they feel like each one has their unique uh, claim, right. uh, unique history, and unique aspiration. That's clearly wrong. I mean, if you think about, uh, I live in San Francisco, and literally uh, sometimes uh, in a you know, celebratory way, but oftentimes in an appropriation way, you hear uh, people saying, gay is the new black or the, the, the environmental movement, it's the new civil rights movement, or the yeah. women. So they're <laughs> yeah. constantly making reference. And what occurred to me is that 
the human condition is one about belonging. Uh, we simply cannot thrive unless we are in relationship. I just gave a lecture on health. And if you're isolated, the negative health condition is worse than smoking, obesity, high blood pressure, just being isolated. Uh, so we need to be in relationship with each other. And so when you look at what groups are doing, whether they are disability groups or whether they are uh, uh, groups organized around race, they're really trying to make us a claim of, I belong, I'm a member. So if you think about Black Lives Matter, it's really just saying, we belong. And we can also measure this empirically. And so it, it occurred to me that the process of othering and belonging is critical, not just the United States, Robert Putnam went to Europe in the 19, in early 1990s, and he saw Europe was becoming more diverse, largely along religious lines. Yeah. And he saw and measured that the people in Europe was act, were actually experiencing anxiety about the other, and that it was having implications in terms of the policy and welfare state in Europe. And he talked about the anxiety around the other. Yeah. and what that does to society. And he got blasted for that. And so in the United States, this thing of... Why, why did he get blasted for that? Well, because he was saying... Uh, he, he projected that the welfare state in Europe might become undone unless they dealt with the anxiety around the other. Yeah, well, that uh, seems to be proving itself so out. So he, he was 20, yeah. years, he's yeah. 20 years out, right? Yeah. And, so when, and so when you look at the other, the process of how we... How we define the other affects how we define ourselves. Right. Uh, and so when we define the other at extreme, it means we have to cut off large parts of ourselves, and we have to police the other because no one will stay in that position voluntarily. So then we have to have more police and more military to keep reminding people of the other. One, one other example, which I just love this. I mean, love it in this, is the wrong word. But there was a headline in the newspaper several years ago saying, we're entering a state where the first time in over 350 years, the world will be led by a non-Christian, non-white country. And what it was saying is we should be afraid. What would the world look like when it's led by the other? Uh, and so I think that we have to get beyond this. We talked about not being sustainable. Mm -hmm. uh, no one's going to stay in that position of the other. Uh, and the other thing, last thing I'll say on this is that when we actually come in contact with the other, there's fear we're going to change. So the early debates around integrating schools, the white segregationists were, we can't have integrated schools because black and white children might get to know each other and might marry each other and have babies. The civil rights movement was, this is not about marriage. The white segregationists were right. You bring people together, they will actually learn to love each other, some of them will marry and have children. Uh, and so it will actually change the fabric of society. Mm -hmm. When people worry that uh, having gays in our community will change what marriage means, actually they're right. When people worry that having a lot of Latinos in the United States will change the United States, they are right. That when we contact each other, when we interact with each other, we change each other. We're constantly making each other. And so we can't hold on to a notion that this is what America is, so Latinos don't affect us. So part of it is that, that our fear that we're holding on to something, 
and the other is going to change it. The other is going to change it, but we're going to change the other. And we're going to, if right. we do it right, we're going to create a bigger we, a different we. And there's no way we can approach that challenge, as you just described it, which is a human challenge, with laws or policies or school reform alone. It does. It, it ventures into, into onto spiritual territory, but let's just say it this way: it 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 it's a way of us ta- p- taking up the language of the beloved community, which was the language, mm-hmm. which was the goal of Dr. King and John Lewis and all those people. And you use that language too. That's right. I mean, we've learned some things since then. I mean, you know, one time we talked about integration, and we equated integration with assimilation. Uh, Arthur Schlesinger talked about that in some of his work. That was clearly wrong. We're not going to all melt into each other. And yet, we do have to have a beloved community, not in a small sense, but in the large sense. Um, And I would even extend it beyond people to have a beloved relationship with the planet, that this is not our, our, our toy just to extract oil from, just to extract coal from, and then throw it away. We are part of the planet. Uh, we are affected by the planet. We are an expression of the planet. And to live that um, and to have structures that reflect that uh, is a very different way yeah. of ordering society. Uh, and, and then I think we can also learn to relax. Then we don't have to be afraid of the force. Uh, yes, it will take us beyond where we're comfortable with who we are right now. Uh, but I think we need help in getting there. And right now, we don't have the language for that because we still have the language of the Enlightenment Project. We still have the language of you can be anything you want to be. You can control. You're in charge of your own destiny. Even the notion of sovereignty is very problematic. You know, that, yeah. that I, whether it's a community or a nation, there's no such thing as sovereignty. We are in relationship with each other. It can be a bad relationship or a good relationship, but we are in relationship with each other. How do we begin to talk about that? And what the right wing has been able to do is speak to that deep ontological anxiety, that spiritual need. The left has been uncomfortable talking about spirituality yeah. because the left, in some ways, is more attached to the Enlightenment Project than the right. They're more attached to the individuality than the right. So to give you an example, in the last election, the right wing, the left was saying, if, if Mitt Romney won, I'm gonna leave the country. I am going to leave the country. Me personally, right? The right wing was saying, if Obama wins re-election, we, not I, we are going to succeed. So we were organized around individuals. They were organized around a collective. And actually, you see expressions of that over and over again, that in some ways, the left is much less comfortable with the we than the right is. Uh, I think that has to change. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, opening up the race narrative with esteemed thinker and legal scholar John A. Powell. We're with a live audience at the On Being studios on Loring Park in Minneapolis. So I want to open this up in just a minute for you. And so, Trent, are we, how are we doing this? We have cards. So if you... Yeah, we, we love introverts here, so we give introverts a chance the people who would not stand up and ask for the microphone. So um, if you're one of those, write your question down and pass it forward, and we'll just speak for a few more minutes up here. Um, 
Okay, so I think what's also relaxing about what you just said about belonging and, and reframing our relationship with the other is, you know, one thing that becomes overpowering when we talk about race or, yeah, is we tend to talk about clusters of issues. And we, and it, you know, and, and whether it's income inequality or schools or crime and incarceration or segregated neighborhoods, uh, and it even, on a global scale, it even gets into these issues of, of scarcity, scarcity of natural, resor- natural resources. So all of those things are problems. They are big issues. But uh, when you start lumping them all together as what we have to tackle, it's completely overwhelming and paralyzing. Um, it's not that the project of belonging is simple. No, it's not. But somehow I feel that it might open our imaginations in a new way, which also might open possibilities for action. Well, I think that's right. One, one reason the problems seem overwhelming is because we're using the wrong tools to understand them and fix them. So when you have... Um, we're actually talking about a profound change in paradigm. And, and so right now we're still thinking about, it's like trying to uh, think about computers as fancy typewriters. So if you're using the, the, the framework of typewriters to try to make sense of computers, it's very clumsy. It doesn't work. Uh, you have to really shift it all together. Or you think about uh, um, automobiles. You know, automobiles was initially thought of as a, as a uh, horseless horse, carriage. Horseless carriage, right? So <laughs> right. the whole way of understanding cars was like a carriage, a horse. Mm-hmm. You know, so the, the the metaphors break down and they don't work. And so right now we're trying to use, I would say, the the language of individuality, the language of the enlightenment, to understand something that goes into a different area, and it's, it makes it incredibly complicated. Actually, I think that because everything is connected. Uh, I say this to my students sometimes. If you want to affect all the people in San Francisco with the measles, it doesn't mean you have to go around to each person one at a time. Just go to BART, which is our subway, on a crowded day, expose it, it's done. They will actually, the network, because people are in relationship, they will do the rest of the work for you. So because we're in systems, if we can figure out where are the what's called inflection point in systems, it populates the whole system. So how can we make belonging infectious? Is that- how, can, how do we make it infectious? How do we, uh, and, and I think this is actually, the people are longing for this. People are looking for community. Right now, though, we don't have confidence in love. You mentioned love earlier. We have much more confidence in anger and hate. Uh, we believe anger is powerful. Yeah. Uh, we believe hate is powerful. Um, and we believe love is wimpy. And so if we're engaged in the world, we believe it's much better to sort of organize around anger and hate. Um, and yet we see two of the most powerful expressions, certainly Gandhi, certainly uh, the Reverend Dr. King. And I always remind people he was a Reverend. He wasn't just a Dr. King. Even though he came out of a violent revolution, uh, Nelson Mandela. He just, again, I met him personally. He just exuded love. And uh, as you know, he had a chance to leave prison early. Uh, he refused to unless it, it, it included 
structuring the, the, the country. He actually tried to actually lean into a notion of beloved community. Yeah. He actually didn't want the, the, the blacks to control or dominate the whites. He wanted to create a non... So his, his aspiration, and he's loved. Even today, he's loved in South Africa, and he's loved around the world. So I think part of it is that uh, we don't have to imagine doing things one at a time. And the other thing is that it's not that we necessarily get there, but we claim life our own and others. We actually celebrate and engage in life. Um, and uh, so to me, it's, like, it's not like, how do we get there? It's like, how do we live? Yeah. Uh, and we don't know the end of life. We don't know. There was a period of time I was feeling really overwhelmed with a lot of this stuff. And I um, was talking to my dad. And I said, you know, dad, it's just, this is just too much. I can't do it all. It's, you know, I'm trying to do all this stuff by myself. And he looked at me and said, well, John, you know you're not alone. And I said, well, what do you mean, Dad? He said, well, you got God with you. Um, and I realized, although I don't organize around God in the way that he does, my mistake was I thought I had to do it, that I was defining it instead of we. So the, the were, job is... You were in that white mode. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I think we should both get out of that white mode yeah. and do it together. Yeah. I, so I want to open this up in just a minute, as I said. I, you know, you wrote something. Um, you wrote, so, so I always, uh, we're talking big ideas and beautiful words, and I, but I also really care about change and living differently. Um, you wrote, um, so, I, so I'm looking in your work, you know, and you, you're, you're giving these pointers, but, you know, so here's something you wrote. If you look at 1950s attitudes towards integration versus today, the majority of whites today say they'd prefer to live in an integrated neighborhood and send their kids to integrated schools. What they mean by that is a different question, but also the world and demographics of the country are changing, and to live in a white enclave is not to live in the world and I think it has, I think you were, this is an interview, it has a certain deadness to it. It has a certain spiritual corruption to it. And you said, I think most people, white, black, Latino, and otherwise, would like to see something different. We just don't know how to do it. And we've been so entrenched in the way things are. It's hard to imagine the world being different. I, you speak for me. You speak for so many people. This is what we're up against. I feel like this is what we have to attack first, this inability to see differently. You told one story uh, about Oak Park near Chicago. It was just really helpful to me. It was just, was, and, you, and so here it started with it. You said when we tell stories about you integrate neighborhoods and housing values go down. And the way we always tell the story is blacks moved in, African-American, people of color moved in. And the way we could tell the story is whites moved out. But you talked about how just this very practical measure that was taken so that the housing values didn't change. Would you just tell that story? Sure. I feel like these little stories are really crucial as well. And, and, you know, there are really a lot of them. They're little and they're big. So Oak Park is in Chicago. Uh, Chicago is one of the most segregated areas in the country. Uh, Cook County has the largest black population of any county in the United States. Uh, and a lot of studying of segregation takes place in Chicago. So here you have Oak Park, this precious little community, and there were liberal whites there, and blacks started moving in, and they were saying, look, you know, we actually don't mind blacks living in, but we're concerned that we're going to lose the value of our home. That's the only wealth we have. And if we don't sell now, we're going to lose. And, and they basically said, if that's the real concern, not 
the blacks are moving in, that you're going to lose the value of your home. What do we work to ensure that you will not lose the value of your home? We'll literally create an insurance policy that your, the value of your home, we will compensate you if the value of your home goes down. And they put that in place. And we was what, the local government? The, yeah. yeah. And they haven't had to pay one policy. Uh, whites didn't run to the suburbs, further out to the suburbs. And that's a stable community. It's been that way for 50 years. Uh, so part of it is, and this is sort of interesting on a num number of levels, because you could say those white people were just being racist. They were just using the insurance policy as an excuse. Maybe, maybe not. So are you willing to actually take them at their word? Are you willing to embrace them and engage them where they are? Because people do have anxieties, and they're multiple. But I want to give two other examples very quickly. Yeah. Think about Katrina. So these examples are all around us, and yet we don't tell stories about them. Katrina, the face of Katrina, when you remember it, it was blacks stuck on roofs as the water was rising. What's not told is that Americans all Americans, gave to those people. It was the largest civilian giving of one population to another in the history of the United States. So here you had white Americans, Latino Americans, Asian Americans, trying to reach out to what they saw as black Americans. They were actually saying, they were claiming, we have a shared humanity. And they actually did a poll asking people if they were willing to raise taxes to rebuild. 70% of Americans said, yes, we will tax ourselves to help those people. The pundits and the politicians ignored it. And so that story simply didn't get told. Mm. The fastest growing demographic in the United States, the fastest growing demographic in the United States, is not Latinos. It's actually interracial couples. Uh, and into ethnic couples. That's the fastest growing. That's people themselves, right now, not tomorrow, trying to imagine a different America, trying to say, I can love anyone. I can be with anyone. Now, there's not a political movement around it, and people don't talk about it very much. And the biggest political movement that I'm aware of came out of the Cheerios commercial. And I don't know how many of you saw the Cheerios commercial. Uh, when the, that commercial was on television, and many people, mainly white, attacked them for having an interracial couple on television. That was an affront to them. And then the people who are in these interracial uh, communities actually decided they need to create a, a website, and they did. So I think when we start looking for it, we see expressions all around it. Oftentimes, they're, no, they're not celebrated, they're not talked about, uh, they're not created, there's no structures for them. So we have to embrace them and lift them up. Yeah. Uh, but there's reason to be hopeful. And talk about a movement that is going to change the DNA of race, right? Really? I yes. mean, you know, Richard Rodriguez talks about the browning of America. Yes. Okay, let's in invite you into the conversation. Okay, I'd ask if um, anybody who wants to ask a question via the mic, I'm glad to hand it to you. And if you're too shy, I'm glad to take your card and ask it for you. So the first one comes from Leo Lopez. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Leo Lopez. I'm here with my two daughters, 13 and 15. Uh, I think it's a very worthwhile educational experience, so I pulled them out of school. <laughs> <laughs> uh, with the framework, uh, quoting Richard Rodriguez, that the browning of America is inevitable, um, do you think, as a banker, that if collectively people of color, uh, if we own a proportionate amount of the wealth of this country, will race relations be better? So if <clears throat> the demographers are right, and in 2050, 
will be 49.9% of the population. It's my dream, of course, because most likely it will not come to pass that we own 49.9% of the wealth. Would that make things better? And am I wrong in championing that idea amongst us that we have a responsibility to build equity in that sense? Well, I think uh, we definitely have responsibility to actually build equity. Uh, I push something I call targeted universalism that uh, my friend Gary knows about real well, which is basically to say... I decided not to ask you because I knew you'd bring it up. <laughs> <laughs> where, is it, where do we want to get to? And where we want to get to is not simply what whites have. We actually need to state what is our goal. And then our way of getting there will vary based on how we're situated. And different groups are situated differently. So if we just say, let's have our proportionate share of what, what whites have, that's an improvement over where we are now, but it's not far enough. There's a, a couple of complexities in your question. Um, it's not clear that 2050 we'll ha we will have a, a non-white majority in the country. 53% uh, of Latinos self-identify as white. Uh, if that sticks, and it might not, if that sticks, there will be a larger percentage of white people in 2050 than they are today. Uh, now, um, it may not stick, and a lot of people say it won't stick. But the other thing is that when we talk about this beloved community, from my perspective, we're talking about what I call a circle of human concern, a circle of concern for all life, human life, and I would see non-human life as well. And in that effort, it's important to make sure that uh, people of color are really valued and situated and have resources uh, and political and other power that other groups have. But it's also important to actually continue to be in relationship to whites. Uh, I think ultimately, I do think uh, a healthy world really requires not just a restructuring of what people of color have, but a restructuring of white identity. Uh, and that's not a project that we've taken on. Uh, because the serious problem, you know, in the 1960s, Bundy wrote about the Negro problem. Well, uh, at the Ford Foundation. Well, today, I would write about the white problem. We really need to come to terms with the white problem, not in a negative way, not in terms of white guilt, not in terms of uh, beating up on whites, but really trying to help whites, because we are deeply related, uh, give birth to a different identity. A uh, question from Twitter. Actually, it comes from a great blog called The Theology of Ferguson on Medium. And uh, Jake from Portland, Oregon asks, how should the Christian church learn from its mis mistakes and move from segregation to holy equity? Well, you know, I don't uh, claim to be able to speak for the Christian church, and there are many different Christian churches. Uh, I'm enjoying some of the stuff I'm hearing from one Christian church, uh, the Catholic. Uh, Pope Francis, I think, is doing some incredible things. He's not perfect. Well, I guess I shouldn't say that, because some Catholics would say he is perfect. But anyway, <laughs> he's doing some amazing things. I'll leave it at that. Uh, but you know, uh, if you look at different religions, almost all religions have been twisted and distorted and whatever. Many of them were captured by the state or in deep relationship with the states. Uh, and from my perspective, abandon uh, what might be their deep mission. I think we have to embrace, because in, in the world, most people do believe in something other than themselves. Um, and how do we actually start thinking about that 
in, in broad terms? How do you think about, you know, you have the fights between the Protestants and the Catholics. That fight is a friendly fight now, but it's still a fight. You have the fights between the Shiites and the uh, Sunnis, Muslims. So part of the thing is that how do we have a set of a religion or a set of religions or beliefs that acknowledge that we have a diverse world, that we only have one world, that we're in relationship with each other, that we value each other. Um, and there are a number of churches trying to lean into that. Uh, I just got a contact from Riverside churches where Dr. King gave a lot of his speeches saying they want to reclaim their role in terms of helping to be the moral voice for this country from a theological perspective. Uh, and they've actually reached out to ask if I would be in conversation with them. So I think once the church engages that and doesn't see its role as just what happens on Sunday or just what happens in its own four walls, but it sees itself as part of the larger world, uh, then I think it's moving in the right direction. Hi, Dr. Powell. Um, I work right across the street at Minneapolis Community and Technical College, and I know that we have a St. Paul public schools principal in the audience. And you talk a lot about interdependence, and I'm wondering, if you were the czar of US public education, what questions <laughs> would you ask us to ask ourselves? The first question I would ask you, you'd ask yourself is, why do we have a czar? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think uh, you know, no one person, maybe with the exception of Einstein, but no one person is smarter than all of us. And so part of this, how do we come together and learn together? Um, and what is the purpose of education? I mean, I think we've sort of lost our way. Uh, Jefferson and Dewey were the two of the great uh, pro uh, progenitors of education in the United States. Uh, they both thought that education was actually to help people take the perspective of the other. They both thought it was, it was to help people become citizens, productive citizens of a society. Uh, and they talked of citizens not in terms of expressing just individual wants, but expressing a relationship in a community. They both had a communitarian notion of education. We've largely lost that now. We think of education as a private good. One reason we don't fund public schools anymore, I teach at Berkeley as a public university, only 10% of our funding comes from the state. Yeah. Uh, so we've actually, and now we think of education as a technical skill that allows you to get a job. Uh, and what you get is yours. So it actually becomes in service of the individual. Um, also, I, would, I think in terms of education, one of the things we have to learn is to live in this diverse world. Well, how do we do that when we still are replicating these enclaves uh, of segregation and fear and scarcity under the education model? I think the education, even if you're getting perfect scores on your SAT scores, is actually misserving us. It's not teaching us to live. So, but in a here, let me world. just. So, but I think the question might be, okay, let, uh, you're not called a czar. There's no czar. <laughs> but, but, you know, if you could go into a school, and change something, or or pose a question for the, let's say, for the school to live into. Yeah. Well, it's actually interesting because I'm doing that around the country right now. I'm working probably six different school districts, including uh, Oakland and, and uh, Seattle and uh, several others. And usually they invite me in for some particular issue. They don't usually invite right. me in to be the czar. Uh, <laughs> but, th but they're having a problem. Uh, and the problem is usually organized, frankly, around the schools have growing diversity and they have a uh, what I call opportunity gap between uh, the white students and uh, the students of color. Um, 
And sometimes it's very simple things. So, for example, um, there's a school that was in uh, San Francisco has an 11 to 1 disparity in terms of students being pushed out of school. So black students are pushed out 11 times more likely than white students. Mm. Well, the first thing, stop doing that. That's easy. Just stop doing that. Uh, I wouldn't have uh, these um, accelerated classes. You go to any school in the United States today, uh, I think one of the number one schools and school systems in the country is uh, Palo Alto which is where Stanford is, 83, 83 to 85% of the students go to Ivy League schools, not to college, go to Ivy League schools. The other 15%, which are largely students of color, barely graduate. The best school system in the world, by some accounts, is Finland. Uh, and Finland went from being very low to actually having a school system that worked for the whole country. Now, people might say, well, that's because Finnish are all white, but they're not. They're having a large influx of people uh, who are not white and certainly not Christian uh, and had many of the um, disparities that we see in the United States. And they took it on. Uh, they made the whole system design that not only did they, quote unquote, close the gap, but they propelled Finland to be the number one school in the world. It's, and you know, the policy part of it, we don't know everything, we know a lot. The best school system, or one of the best school systems in the United States, uh, was the Wake County school system. What did they do in Wake County? Uh, that's the Research Triangle, which has more PhDs than any other area of the country. They basically said, look, we know high poverty schools are harder to educate kids. We know schools that are segregated in terms of ability groups are harder to educate kids. We're not gonna have those. They just said, as a matter of course, no school, no school will be allowed to have more than 40% of the students on free and reduced lunch. No school will be allowed to have more than 25% of the students failing the statewide exam. Within five years, the African-American students' performance on statewide tests more than doubled, uh, the Latinos more than doubles, and the whites inched up a little bit. So we know how to do some things. How did they do that? How did they? It was actually quite interesting because they, they took it to the voters and they said, do you want to have this school system which is uh, educationally and economically integrated? And the voters said no. Uh, so then they took it to the politicians and they said, this makes sense. Which the voters said no, but would you vote for it as a politician? And the politician said no. And then the business community said, unless you do something about the school system in Wake County, we're leaving. It was actually the business community that huh. pushed it through. Uh, several years later, literally this is one of the best school systems in the country, over 90% approval rating by the parents and students. The Tea Party came in and said, this is social engineering because the housing is segregated. Students are being bused all over Wake County, which is, uh, which is Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, so they went back to neighborhood schools. And I always say there's nothing wrong with neighborhood, and that's just nothing wrong with the neighborhood. Um, <laughs> So they went back to neighborhood schools. And once again, the business community stepped up and said, same threat. You do this, we're out of here. And so they re they're reinstating it. And that's just one example. It's just not that hard. But what we do is we say we want to change, but not in my neighborhood. You know, go fix North Minneapolis or go fix this place. But my school is fine. And your school might be fine academically. But in a country as diverse as ours, and that's becoming more diverse, uh, if you're not learning in a diverse setting, you're being miseducated. Uh, a quick question from uh, Twitter again from uh, Kat Ellington, a med student in Queens, New York. 
How do we continue to move these conversations about difference in community beyond the kitchen table? Uh, well, one thing, um, you know, I think they're more than conversation. I think they're practice. And I think, uh, you know, all of us sort of need to sort of look at not just what we say and do, but also uh, we need to look at our practice, look at our structures. I mean, think about schools, how we fund schools actually undermine resourcing schools well. We still fund schools mostly by local property tax. Since property is segregated, it means that places like Detroit, which have high property uh, rates, don't yield very much because the home values are not. I mean, so it's systemic. And what I said at the beginning, I think it's true, is that race and these issues are incredibly complicated. Uh, and so we have to lean into them because I think, this may sound very controversial, uh, but I think it's right. I think the number one issue facing the world today is diversity. Not climate change, it's diversity. That because I think if diversity continues to be used as a whipping board to create anxiety in this country, what we'll see is people will move away from government and delegitimize government, which will make it impossible for government to regulate the climate. So the, the, the anxiety that we see in Europe and the United States around the other and how it's being used as a way to delegitimize government is huge. Now think about this. We are under attack the federal government's under attack. The reason is that from the 1960s and 70s, the conservatives saw the federal government being captured by the civil rights movement. And part of their strategy was to delegitimize the federal government. And they've been largely successful. You're seeing similar things that are happening in Europe right now. Uh, so these things are not simple. I mean, there's some things we can do, but as we lean into it, we'll find they're, they're more and more complicated. Uh, but they're also fascinating. I mean, it's a sort of interesting world we live in. Um, and, um, and so I would say be in some deliberate conversations. Uh, you know, there's a great book out, uh, I think, but then I wrote it. Uh, it. It is a great book. I just read it. <laughs> it's not a page turner. Racing towards justice. <laughs> the, it's, the, the, uh, it's so important that you... That you name the problems and then you talk about how fascinating this is, right? There's something about us defining, going into these conversations and going into deliberations about what's to be done, treating it as a problem and an issue and a burden. And it may be all of those things, but also life-giving work mm -hmm. and fascinating work. I think that's right. That will make us... More each one of us more whole. Well, part of the thing, you know, as a country, we really don't like talking about race. And part of it is because it's a hard conversation, and oftentimes we do it badly. And, uh, you know, it's like if you have a party, and you invite people to your party, and it's a bad party, you know? <laughs> then you say, I'm going to have another party next weekend. It's like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm out of town. Uh, th there's a friend of mine who's actually working on this, and I, what she's doing is creating a lending library uh, on a bunch of things, but also around fashion, around art. Uh, and her idea is to bring people together. Uh, and she's really, she's not into fashion. She's not so much in art. She's into social justice. And she's into bringing people together from different communities, but to, in a fun way. Now, and when she does that, and, she does, and she's done it before, and she's going to do it again, people like to come because it's like, ooh, it's about fashion. But it's like, come, let's talk about white privilege and about... <laughs> I think I'm busy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you, Dr. Powell. My name is Katie. And uh, a comment and a question. It's great to see you. I saw you at Bioneers in nice 2014, you, so thank you. Um, a note for our community, there's a wonderful play at the Illusion Theater this week on Thurgood Marshall. Mm -hmm. First African-American Supreme Court Justice, worked on, the, um, on um, Brown versus Board of Education. A wonderful play and a, an amazing man who did so much for our, our nation. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about um, dualism, a little bit more about the dualism in our language. Mm -hmm. It seems so embedded. Um, there's a lot of us in community talking about unitive consciousness. Mm -hmm. How do we break that, how do we break down the dualism that is so part of the English language right. and move toward a more unitive consciousness, what you're talking about throughout your entire um, interview. Thank you. Well, thank you for the question. Um, you know, I say to my students that when, you, when something is binary and dual, dualistic, just Interrogate it. It's, it's probably because uh, that's because life is interesting, complicated, messy, and then sometimes there are through lines through it. Uh, and um, in terms of the self, you know, I actually talk about the multiple selves that we actually have multiple identities. And in a really healthy society, I believe our identities we will claim our multiple identities, uh, and on, on on every level. I mean, some in some places. My most salient identity will be, you know, that I'm a tall black man. Sometimes it's going to be that I'm over 60. Sometimes it's going to be that, you know, somewhere along the way I lost some hair. Uh, uh, and, or it might be that uh, I'm a cancer survivor. I mean, things, our identities keep changing. Um, and if we allow the space, they will change. When we don't allow the space, when we threaten, uh, I remember when I first moved uh, to Ohio, there was a, a guy there who was head of the Urban League. He came and looked me up. I think uh, he had talked to someone um, here at the Urban League, and they said, when John Powell gets there, you, you're going to look him up. He's a good brother. Well, no, they said, he's a good dude to work with, but he's not a real brother. And so this guy was very forthright. He said, I, I really want to work with you, and I heard you do good work, even though you're not really black. And I said, oh, okay, okay. So, well, now, when did I stop being really black? He said, well, I was told you're a vegetarian. You can't be, you can't be really black unless you eat your, your, your ribs. Uh, so we have these definitions that if you're going to be black, if you're going to be white, if you're going to be Muslim, you have to have a whole package. And we have to sort of break this up a little bit. Um, and... Um, so I think that there, and I, this rigid category is yes or no is almost always wrong. Uh, it's like yes or no. It's that adage, you may have heard it, to be or not to be. That's the answer. <laughs> Hello. Hello. I'm uh, Lawrence Waddell, and uh, I have a question about uh, the psychological part. I wondered if you could speak to uh, things like stigma. For instance, uh, Krista had on uh, uh, Desmond Tutu, and I remember this story, he talked about, he spoke about, he said he was on an airplane. And he said, you know, it was his proudest moment. There were two black pilots, and, you know, and then the plane had trouble in the air, and he's thinking, hey, there are no white pilots up there, you know? So, <laughs> <laughs> Who's gonna fly this, I thought it was like, completely courageous and honest yeah. to, to you know, speak to how um, 
let's say, ubiquitous this issue is of um, stigma and the psychological part of what we're trying to get over. Um, we don't, I don't know of psychologists that deal with the uh, trauma that has happened. I'm just wondering if you had any uh, thoughts on it. Sure, there's, there's actually a lot on this. Uh, there's the whole mind science. There's a, a, um, a website uh, called the Project Implicit where you can actually go and take a test to see what you're describing are these unconscious processes. The unconscious actually is very fast and very big. And it actually makes associations based on frequency. So if you, sh if you show uh, Pavlov's dog, the ring in the bell, and the salivating, the bell has nothing to do with food, right? But if you ring the bell and feed the dog, ring the bell, feed the dog, pretty soon the dog will actually associate the bell and food. So if you show the picture of a black man and crime, we're like Pavlov's dog. At an unconscious level, we'll create a neural linkage between crime and black. The same in terms of if you, you don't see, you never see a black pilot, you, you actually will have an association that where blacks can't fly. Uh, and th this is social, right? This gets lodged into our unconscious. And, uh, and most of the time, we're not aware of it. Um, we can measure this, though. We can measure in terms of um, skin resistance, pupil dilation, and it actually slows us up. Sometimes our conscious beliefs and our unconscious practices are in conflict, and it actually slows us down, creates anxiety, creates what they call um, uh, cognitive depletion. So part of the thing is just being aware of this. And it doesn't make us bad. Uh, it makes us human. That's what intelligence is, is making these associations. Once we find them, though, we can then start to make interventions to interrupt them. We can, so one female math teacher does not disrupt the stereotype that women can't do math. We need a critical math. Uh, a critical mass. We need a number. And we need to talk about it. Uh, and again, on issues of race, we've learned through the ideology of colorblindness, we're not supposed to notice. We're not supposed to say what Desmond Tutu said. Uh, so part of it is having the courage to just say, you know, if, if, if Krista feels uncomfortable sitting here with me, she can say, you know, I noticed something, right? Now, She's not likely to say that. I'm sure she's not uncomfortable with it. We're sort of really comfortable with each other. But uh, if she were to say that, she'd like to get blasted. She's a racist. She's this. She's that. Uh, but we all have these discomforts. So part of it is to create space where we can actually unearth these discomforts and help each other get beyond them, but also to have these practices. Uh, um, so like I said, a critical number of math teachers who are women will actually change that. The first one won't. The first pilot won't disrupt the stereotype that pilots are white. You need a critical mass. I, I love this, this science of implicit bias where I, I feel like that, I, I, I wish we were, I want to talk more about that. I mean, we can't, I, I thought we might get into it today, but it, it's worth um, all of us learning about because it, it, it is liberating from, from blame or self-blame. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's kind of, so it takes it out of that realm, but it is knowledge that is a form of power. Mm -hmm. If we can acknowledge this and know it about ourselves, then we start to have some kind of control over it. That's exactly right. The thing about implicit bias, and it's a whole field, and it's, it's all really blowing up since with the, the police, last 30 yeah, years. Yeah, um, and also there's a lot going on now with police forces and 
which are starting to train police forces. The city of Seattle has agreed to have all 10,000 employees trained on implicit bias. Um, And um, it's it's, it's huge. I mean, just very big. Implicit bias, one of the things about it, and it's sort of unfortunate we call it bias because it's really implicit means unconscious or not fully conscious. Um, And the reality is everyone has that. That's the human human nature. And what's in our implicit biases are social. They're not individual. So in a society where we treat blacks a certain way, and we've done this, we've looked at 11 million words that most people use over their lifetime. How frequently do you use black with negative? And it's very high. It's like 40 to 50% of the time. So all the time, that's what you're hearing. That's what you're seeing. That's what you're hearing. This is the air that we breathe. You breathe that, oh, you, you know, until you're an adult, you're going to have those associations. Not because you're white. Whites will have them, blacks will have them, Latinos will have them. If you have negative associations in a society about women, men will have them and women will have them, but they're social. So we have negative associations in this society about Muslims. They don't have those negative associations in Turkey. So those associations are social. So part of it means that we have to look at what those associations are, where they come from. And we can create some prophylactic thing, but, it, but ultimately we need to change the environment itself. Right. Uh, we change the we, we change the I. That's right. Mm. Uh, one last question from over here. Hello. Hello. Uh, my name is Hannah. I uh, work in higher education. Um, and I saw you last year at the White Privilege Conference, and you mentioned something there, um, and you kind of mentioned in your book, too, that I wanted to ask you about. And that's talking about categories um, and kind of what you mentioned earlier, that the growing population being multiracial and looking at how we categorize people on census and other you know, forms or whatnot, what do you think is, or is there a good balance of, or another way of um, categorizing, I guess, that's a better reflection of who people are and yet still knowing the necessity of needing those categories? I guess I struggle with that. I don't know if there's ever the best yeah. way to do that or what do you, love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, it's, it's actually like a lot of the questions today, it's actually very complex. The, the mind categorizes. If we didn't categorize, we couldn't make sense of the, the, the world. Uh, by some accounts, we process 11 million bits of information a second at the unconscious level and only 40 at the conscious level. Uh, so as, as things come to the conscious, they, they get organized at the unconscious in networks called schemas, and those are categories. If we try to actually not have those categories, the world wouldn't make sense to us. We simply couldn't survive. So categorization is a necessary part of human function. What the categories are, the content of them, and how we evaluate them is largely social. So it doesn't mean then, therefore, we'd have to not have a black category. We could have a black category without it being negative. Uh, we can also have categories that are porous. So we let people move from one category to the next. I, used, I sometimes so jokingly say to my students, in a healthy world, no one would have to be white their whole life. You know, you get, to, you know, you get to move back and forth. You know, uh, and students are playing with that. But it's not simply an individual choice. It's actually a social and structural choice. People see each other differently. Uh, so how do we actually allow for become aware of some of those categories? We can't become completely aware and allow them to be porous. How do we let let people play with them and have fun with them uh, uh, in a healthy sense? It's not just avatars on on a computer, uh, but in the real sense. Um, uh, so I think we're just at, sort of at the beginning of this research. Um, but again, there's been stuff written about this years ago about frozen identities, that a healthy identity is not frozen, it's flexible. 
Well, the flexibility is more than what we thought about in the 80s and 90s. It's actually extremely multiple. And I actually challenge my students to, in their dreams at least, to inhabit different identities. And most of them were able to do it. It took a while, but most of them were able to do it. Uh, and I challenged them because initially I said something like, how many of you ever dreamt you were an inanimate object or a, uh, a non-human object? And this was at the University of Minnesota. Everybody raised their hand, mostly white students. And I said, so how many of you have ever dreamt you were a black woman? Nobody raised their hand. And I said, doesn't that strike you as odd? And they said, why is it odd? I'm not a black woman. I said, neither are you a rock. You know? <laughs> Uh, so, so, and, and also I think some of this work can't be done by yourself. We need to be in relationship with others. Uh, we need to create space where we can come together and uh, engage this stuff because we do learn from each other. These are social phenomena, not simply quote unquote individual phenomena. Um, one more question? Yeah. Hi, my name is Jana Shalomith, and I work for Ramsey County, which is local government where St. Paul is a part of. And Cornell West says, justice is what love looks like in public. And I'm wondering, can public policy help in making confidence in love infectious? Well, I think public policy can help a lot. Um, there's uh, uh, some researchers say that if you want to change people's mind, you change behavior. And if you want to change behavior, you change institutions. That is a debate, which is first. But clearly, they infect uh, and affect each other. Uh, so how do we actually think about policies and structures that reflect our deepest values, uh, our, our way of uh, connecting? Think of something like restorative justice in schools. Uh, think about actually giving expression to uh, our ability to love each other. Uh, think about holding up people who are uh, you know, there's a, a group at Berkeley, we call it the greater good. Um, so I think there, there are ways in which uh, governments and, and private, uh, or what's called private industry as well, could actually lean into this. Um, uh, there's a whole thing about a caring economy. How do we actually learn to care for each other? I actually think in a healthy society, and we've actually done a little of this. We did this with AmeriCorps, and we did a little bit with um, uh, the Peace Corps. I think in a healthy society, we would actually care for each other, not by just giving money, but by being in relationship with each other, by actually uh, sharing each other's suffering. I'll tell you a story. My dad is, like I said, be 95 this year. When my mom died, they had this wonderful relationship. I mean, it was really out of a storybook. So people would say, well, you know, was growing up, you know how when your mom and dad fight? And I said, actually, I don't. You know, this just wasn't our experience. Um, so when my mom died, and my dad was like, he was ready to be done. And so he got a, a serious um, uh, disease. Uh, they thought it was cancer. And uh, they said they need to operate. And he said, no. He said, you know, I've lived long enough. Uh, I'm ready to go. Uh, and he's so sweet. He, he, he had been saving his shoes. Never worn them, saving his shoes. Uh, so he went and got these shoes. I wear probably size 13 or 14. These shoes were size 9. And he said, John, I have these shoes for you. And I'm looking at him. I said, Dad, what am I supposed to do with those shoes? Uh, and, he, and he said, I want you to have them. I said, Dad, these shoes are useless for me. You keep them. Uh, 
And he said, I'm ready to go. And all the kids got around and we said, you know, if you need to go, Dad, you can go, but we still need you. He said, you know, y'all grown. Uh, so I did some research uh, on this tumor. And I went back to him and shared it with the research to him. I said, Dad, I just want you to know, if you want to go, that's fine, but there's a chance that tumor will explode in your body, cause excruciating pain, and not kill you. And he said, okay, okay, I'll, I'll have the operation. Uh, <laughs> and then I said, so dad, why do you think, because he, he's very Christian, very, I said, what do you think God is keeping you here for? And he said, I, uh, he said, I guess my last lesson to teach the kids is how to care for me. Hmm. And so instead of seeing it as a burden, because he needs care, it's like, that's my last gift to you, is to teach you how to care. And it really is wonderful. Uh, so I think that we need, in, a, in a healthy society, we don't not just have the words that were related, that we actually learn to care for each other. And we celebrate that. Uh, and I think policy can help that. Uh, you know, like uh, Good, Samaritan, Good Samaritan laws. I think a lot of things we can do. Uh, but I think it needs to be animated by a sense that we are connected, uh, that we share each other, and yes, that we in fact love each other. Oh, um, you know, I, I have to say, I'm just going to say honestly, um, in this room, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that we haven't talked about Ferguson or, and all the things around Ferguson and all the other places. I also feel that it's a, a good sign of what happened here, um, because that is all so serious and so important, and, it, and we're going to be grappling with all the issues it raises and all the challenges it raises. I think it's galvanized us, made us more aware in some ways. But also, I feel what is evident in, in John Powell's work and in this room is that the, the worst things that happen also don't define us. There's, there's more to our struggle with this that's alive and potentially redemptive. I mean, John, I think you've been answering this question the whole time. Um, but I, I do want to ask you, just in closing, you know, as oh, in the course of your life, your evolution as a human being, um, the multiplicity of yourself, um, how how would you talk about what you've, you know, how you think at this point about what it means to be human, how you would begin to describe that, and whether that may or may not include the word race? Um, you know, that's a big question. Uh, so I'll tell you a story. Um, I went to Stanford, and um, I was one of the co-founders of the Black Student Union at Stanford. And we had a meeting, and in that meeting, we decided that uh, there were some, definitely some good white people, but not that many. <laughs> and it took a lot of energy to find them. The transaction cost of finding good white people was way too high. So, so we decided, okay, let's just stop trying to find these. Let's not relate to white people. Actually, I didn't support that position, but uh, that was the, uh, that's where the group went. And I left the meeting, it was about noon, and I was walking across Stanford, and I don't know if, if you've actually been to Stanford, but the, the center part of Stanford is uh, very busy, especially at noon, and there's always people teaming about. And I'm walking back across campus in this area, and there's nobody there. It's empty. And, and all the time I was at Stanford, I've never seen that part of the campus like that. And then there's this one woman walking toward me, 
again, the physical space where students hang out is actually quite small, so you see students all the time. I'd never seen this woman before, and I never saw her again. And as she's walking toward me, I notice she's blind, and she has a cane, and she walks into a maze of bicycles. And, and I said, oh, that's too bad. And she, as she turns and knocks down bicycles, she starts panicking. And I'm thinking, that's really sad. But we just made this agreement. It's not my problem. I keep walking. She turns again, and she knocks down more bicycles. And finally, I can't walk past her. And I go over, and I take her out of the maze of bicycle. Uh, and then she goes on her way. And I go back to the meeting, and I say, I can't do it. I can't adhere to that agreement. And to me, that was one of the defining moments. And I sort of like, you know, I'm not a theist, um, but I wonder, how did the universe send that woman to me? That, that she helped me to engage and claim my humanity that took me on a different path. And I think uh, being human is about being in the right kind of relationships. I think being human is a process. Uh, you know, it's not something that we just are born with. We actually learn to, to celebrate our connection, learn to celebrate our love. And the thing about it, they say, if you suffer, it does not imply love. But if you love, it does imply suffering. So part of the thing that I think for being human means to love and to suffer. To suffer with, though, compassion, not to suffer against. So to have a space big enough to suffer with, and if we can hold that space big enough, we also will have joy and fun, uh, even as we suffer. And suffer will no longer divide us. And to me, that's sort of the, the human journey. Hmm. Thank you so much. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you.